0: section fourteen of going abroad some advice this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by betty b going abroad some advice by robert luce personalities passports are no longer necessary on the ordinary routes of european travel though indispensable in russia and the turkish dominions including egypt and palestine they are almost never of use in england but are occasionally desirable on the continent and when wanted at all are wanted very much an american may wander through europe for a year without ever having occasion to prove his identity but if the occasion does arise it is urgent the trouble and cost of getting a passport are slight and it is just as well to have one the passport agents or banker's fee can be easily saved by getting a blank application from Washington for nothing. It will be forwarded if you send requests to the Passport Division State Department. Or if you are in a large city, you can get one at a law stationer's for a few cents. Fill it out, swear to it before a notary or justice of the peace, who may charge you fifty cents if you are a stranger, and then forward it with the fee of a dollar to the State Department which in due time will send you the passport better attend to it two or three weeks before sailing but if you should overlook the matter till late have it sent to you at the port of departure in care of the steamer on which you are to sail by the way any letters thus addressed are almost sure to reach you and it is a pleasure to hear from home the last thing before the steamer sails if you find yourself abroad without a passport and get into trouble By reason of its lack, apply at once for help to the nearest American consul. If you want to apply for a passport while abroad, do it through the chief diplomatic representative of the United States in the country where you may be, in his absence through the consul general or consul. If a passport is lost, a duplicate can be secured from the State Department without filling out a new blank an english consul in germany says that any one who intends making a long stay there especially in prussia will find it absolutely necessary to have a passport as according to the police regulations house owners lodging housekeepers etc are bound to report within three days the arrival of any stranger when original proofs of identity are invariably demanded passports are supposed to be required in austria-hungary but are not demanded at the frontier, and are seldom called for anywhere. If the traveler expects to go to Russia, he should send or take his passport to the Russian Consul General, Alexander Oborovsky, 22 State Street, New York, that his visa may be affixed. The fee is $1.20. If the passport is sent, the sender should state the place of birth and also the form of religion professed. The excursionist planning a tour through Central Europe alone is likely to need his passport only in case registered letters or money orders are sent to him. Passports are good for two years, but can then be renewed on application to the State Department at Washington. Baggage. I do not know whether the Romans called their baggage impedimenta because it impeded, but I do know that in all Roger's thesaurus, no truer synonym is to be found since travelling began old travellers have advised new travellers to take little baggage yet every novice takes too much though any but hand luggage makes additional expense that is not inconsiderable the objection is not chiefly on the score of economy for anybody who can afford to travel can usually afford to pay for comfort it is on the score of convenience Everything that is taken must be handled again and again and again. To pack and unpack a trunk takes valuable time. It is no small matter to arrange properly a traveling bag crowded with small articles. Luggage reveals more than anything else what the poet or somebody else has called the natural cussedness of inanimate objects. The traditional needle in the haystack is a crowbar compared with a thimble in a trunk. Don't take a trunk if it can be avoided. It is certainly needless for the ordinary European excursion of anything less than three months. Should you buy bulky articles abroad, get the trunk there, postponing its purchase as long as possible. English tourists on the continent rarely take trunks, but the number of bags and bundles they manipulate is incredible. This because hand luggage pays no railroad fares, as has been explained if a trunk seems indispensable take a steamer trunk which is half the height of an ordinary trunk and is the only kind that is allowed in staterooms it can there be stowed under the berth a safe height for a steamer trunk is thirteen inches if other trunks are to be taken the simpler plainer and stronger they are the better inventors have not had marked success in trunk devices and though a few are good most of them are more bother than they are worth. Baggage smashing is not so general in Europe as in America, but now and then you will see a trunk dropped from the top of an omnibus to the ground, and it is not safe to count on gentle handling. By reason of the baggage rates on continental railroads, travelers use the lightest trunks they can get, frequently buying in Paris or London the cloth-covered wicker hampers in which to bring home their purchases. I have heard of travelers who have carried these hampers about Europe without damaging them, and then had them ruined in getting from New York to Boston. The only one I ever bought was pretty nearly ruined before it got on the steamer, and I am not enthusiastic about their wearing qualities. Have your trunk marked with big colored crosses on the ends, conspicuous initials, or some other mark readily distinguished. There are frequent occasions when it must be picked out of a large pile of baggage on wharves in customs houses and on the platforms of english railway stations for the english have no check system and every time you leave the train you must go to the luggage van and watch the trunks unloaded till yours appears if you are to return from the port at which you land the steamer trunk can be stored in the company's warehouse for a small fee or none ordinarily the passenger leaves it in the stateroom with a tag or label showing the boat and date of return. The stewards put it in the baggage room on the dock, and when you come on board for the return trip, it is found in the stateroom. Of course, though, it is safer to avoid any chance of misunderstanding or oversight by visiting the dock long enough before sailing to make sure that somebody attends to the matter. Should you cross by the southern route to a Mediterranean port with the intention of returning from a northern port, By a boat of the same line your trunk will be sent round there with little or no charge if you want to take the steamer trunk with you the steamer clothes rug ulster, or what you please can well be put in a canvas bag you should have taken for the purpose and stored as the trunk would have been stored an ordinary flour sack will suffice and be quite safe the steamer trunk has for travel on shore advantages in its compactness over the size customary with us, apart from the saving in railway charges. The American hack with its trunk rack behind is unknown abroad, where the boxes go on top of the cab or hansom or else beside the driver. Though large trunks may in fact be thus carried, the small trunk is in this particular much the more convenient for all concerned. Packing a trunk is an art by itself. The important thing is to pack tight If the trunk has two trays and there are not enough things to fill them solid, fill in the bottom and one tray solid and put in the other tray only things that can tumble without damage. Garments should be laid flat rather than rolled. It is useful to put heavy things at the bottom, for baggage smashers never regard a trunk's equilibrium. Fragile articles should not touch sides, top or bottom, for there they will get the full force of concussion if corks are tied up even ink bottles can be safely carried round the world in the middle of a trunk newspapers make good protection for things that projecting corners may hurt and let no woman ask her husband to pack a hat or waist in a trunk let her take the awful responsibility herself of traveling bags the extension style gets the most approval from experienced travelers extension bags are seldom ornamental But the appearance of luggage is never considered abroad. They fit their contents, will hold a surprising amount, and are not so easily crushed that starched linen is likely to get wrinkled or a souvenir broken. Next in preference is that more recent invention, the dress suitcase. It is the most easily packed, holds clothing with a few folds, protects its contents with its unyielding sides, and best of all, can be carried with less fatigue because it lets the handle come nearer the leg than is the case with other styles of bags, and to hold the hand away from the leg is one of the things that makes carrying irksome. English tourists have a fondness for the hold-all, or wrap-up, a despicable-looking thing made of canvas and bound with leather, which has its good points. As its name signifies, it is merely a stout covering, flexible enough to adapt itself to its contents, however bulky they may be. A hold-all and an extension bag together will carry as much as a small trunk. As a substitute for the hold-all, a yard and a half of rubber cloth and a shawl strap can be economically used. But don't take a cheap shawl strap. The stoutest is none too safe. The Little Things I am addicted to the reticule habit, if I may extend a word usually applied to a woman's handbag. cover the sort of satchel that of late years has been much used by men in their journeys between office and home, or away for a night. In long travels it serves as a receptacle for many convenient things that are too bulky for the pocket, yet may be lost or hard to get to in a large valise. In such a small bag can be conveniently carried the guide book, the novel to be read on the train, timetables, field glasses, smoking utensils, when smoking is a habit playing cards and a score of other little things likely to be in demand at any time as well as fruit or luncheons women will find a cloth shopping bag equally handy especially on shipboard where it can be taken on deck with the writing materials book or other little things which are likely to be needed during the day and thus save tremulous trips to the stateroom it adds to convenience if toilet articles are kept for the most part in separate bags and boxes there should be a rubber bag for the sponge a celluloid cover for the toothbrush a celluloid box for the soap and a soiled clothes bag a woman will find use in a small bag for hairpins brush comb and button hook made with a drawstring so that it can be hung in plain sight the toilet requisites of travellers are so nearly alike the world over that it seems almost superfluous To enumerate them. How absurd to tell any civilized being to take a toothbrush. Yet in the haste of packing, even a toothbrush may be overlooked, so it will do no hurt at any rate to print this list. Of course, the classification is based on personal notions. Essential. Toothbrush in celluloid holder. Shaving brush in celluloid holder. Soap, pocket knife, comb and hairbrush, port plaster ink bottle with spring cover, sponge, Vaseline, telescoping drinking cup, steamer rug, a thick carriage robe will serve on a pinch, shawl strap, clothes brush, scissors, stylographic or fountain pen, corkscrew, needles and thread, pincushion and safety pins, toilet paper, in cloth case, twine, visiting cards, buttons, leather purse for coin, address book and pencil, collar buttons and shirt studs, for women glove and shoe buttons sewing silk tapes hooks and eyes hat pins and small pins black and white for anybody whose eyes are weak colored glasses for the near-sighted extra spectacles desirable leather vial case to be bought of a dealer in medical goods or through any apothecary containing vials of jamaica ginger cholera medicine listerine arnica medicine for coughs and colds whiskey, toilet water, hamamelis, ink, paragoric, bootlaces and hatstring, cathartic pills and quinine, sidelets powders, pocket looking glass, pieces of flannel and cotton, hot water bag, a few elastic bands, also tags and labels, patent trouser buttons, playing cards, thin linen paper and envelopes, tape measure or pocket rule, diary, folding alcohol lamp, tube of toothpaste for women smelling salts comforts and luxuries aneroid barometer also pocket thermometer paper covered novels for smokers swedish matches sometimes called fuses binocular glasses combining the merits of field and opera glasses or opera glasses flask compass pocket tool chest tools inside the handle small pillow for steamer chair and in trains clothing every self-respecting man and woman accustomed to the conventionalities of society wants at all times to be neatly dressed but it is universally understood that the exigencies of travel do not permit the variety and elegance of costume customary and practicable at home indeed good taste does not justify the display of elaborate gowns and millinery on steamers in cars and at the tables of hotels frequented by transient guests the plainest garb therefore is permissible in traveling and as a european tour very seldom takes one where a stylish appearance is essential it is both needless and foolish to cumber one's self with a variety of wearing apparel for the woman who does not expect to visit abroad who plans nothing but sightseeing and who makes a quick trip one skirt will suffice unless its wearer has the misfortune to be caught in a driving rain without protection. But in the ordinary course of travel, that is not likely to happen. Even should she be obliged once or twice to stay in her chamber an hour or two while the skirt was dried at the kitchen fire, the bother would be less than that of carrying along an extra skirt. To be sure, the idea of wearing the same skirt for two or three months seems intolerable to most women before they go but though i have heard the verdict of many women who have made the journey i have yet to find one who thinks more than a single skirt an actual necessity though some advise a second if a trunk is taken the skirt should be of some dark material preferably a serge or mohair a coat of the same material with a silk waist and several shirt waists will suffice for outer garments except of course a waterproof in winter abroad and at all seasons on the steamer Some sort of a wrap is necessary, perhaps the most comfortable being a cape ulster. Of course, it is absurd to wear on shipboard anything that will be damaged by salt water, for spray is sure to fly. Women should plan their garments for the voyage so that they can dress and undress with the utmost possible speed. Five minutes delay in the stateroom may send one back to her berth, though she would have been all right could she only have reached the deck older clothes are the common thing on shipboard but that does not mean shabby clothes whoever takes dilapidated garments on board with the idea of throwing them away on reaching the other side will grieve once the qualms of seasickness are gone it is as satisfying to be neatly dressed on the ocean as it is on the land the wise will not aim at elegance nor be unhappy if the garments are not of the very latest and most extreme fashion but they will regret appearing disreputable. Don't forget that steamer chairs give shoes more than usual prominence. A wrapper or bathrobe is a convenience on the steamer, but it is bothersome to carry about on land. Pajamas are highly recommended by men who have used them in berths by reason of the protection they give against drafts and cold. In the cold rooms and damp beds of Southern Europe during the winter season, flannel or flannelette nightgowns will be found a comfort by both men and women. Two sets of underclothing may be made to suffice, for washing is done very quickly at all foreign hotels, yet most people will prefer to carry the slight additional weight of another set. Silk underwear has strong advocates among those who have tried it, and though costlier at the outset, it is said to be more economical in the long run, standing the laundering better. India, not China silk, is advised as being the more easily washed. It sheds rather than gathers dust, does not retain wrinkles, and keeps the body at an even temperature, as it does not conduct the heat so readily as cotton or wool. People who habitually wear thick woolen undergarments during American winters will find them no less comfortable in Southern Europe at the same season, though the thermometer may range much higher than on this side, the water. On the way over, whether in summer or winter, Women may find flannel knickerbockers or silk equestrian tights more convenient than thick petticoats. Another garment that in winter will be found most serviceable for both men and women is the sweater. As a comfort giver on the deck of the steamer, in railway cars, when on long journeys, in hotel chambers, even in art galleries, and when driving, I have never found its equal. It is nearly as warm as an ulster, and far more comfortable when the wearer is walking. Thus far it has been monopolized by people with athletic proclivities, and custom does not permit its use as yet to elderly people, but I feel sure that when travelers come to understand its merits, they will make more use of it. Of course, I do not advise anybody to wear a sweater in Hyde Park, or the Bois, on the Boulevard des Italiens or the Corso, at the theater, or the table dote in places where people congregate everybody should want to dress in a way that will not attract attention by eccentricity and it is true that one is never so much judged by dress as when travelling because then one is judged entirely at first sight but shivering memories of the railway cars of europe and the galleries of italy in winter of the passes of the alps in summer convince me that there are times when even in the presence of strangers comfort and health are of more consequence than appearances as a general rule however one should wear in public abroad nothing that he would not wear in similar surroundings at home thick underclothing may or may not be welcome on shipboard according to the weather summer days at sea are often uncomfortably warm a garment that deserves more popularity is called the rigby a substitute for the mackintosh I found it in Canada, and though it may be sold elsewhere, I have never seen it exposed for sale in the States. The dealer told me it had been chemically treated, so that it was waterproof. Without doubting his veracity, I will merely quote the belief of others that it had been extra shrunk before making up. Anyway, it will stand any wetting to which it is likely to be exposed in travel. It is a soft plaid woolen, made long and with a cape much more agreeable to the touch than the Macintosh, and it can be folded, jammed, twisted, without getting to look disreputable till it is fairly worn out. I have used it for a blanket when camping in the woods, for a pillow, for an extra covering on cool nights when traveling, for a seat, for the outer covering of a shawl strap bundle during many weeks of travel. Besides, for the ordinary purposes of a waterproof and light overcoat, and I haven't been able to ruin the thing or even to injure it perceptibly. Perhaps it is made for women, though I have seen it only for men. It has seemed to me that if travelers of either sex, unable to find just this thing offered for sale, would have a long coat with detachable cape and without lining, made of a light soft woolen plaid, extra shrunk, they would find it in a foreign tour, a most useful substitute for light overcoat, Macintosh, or ulster i am not audacious enough to enter the domain of women's headwear more than to suggest what ought to be self-evident that the wind plays havoc with broad-brimmed hats and that they are uncomfortable in railway cars especially those abroad for there the seats are always against partitions the same suggestion may be made to men the stiff flat wide brim of a straw hat is certainly less adapted to traveling than any other sort of brim indeed men will find a stiff hat of any kind uncomfortable whether it be derby or silk possibly it may violate the laws of good dress to wear a cap all the time yet it is certainly the most pleasurable of all head coverings a felt hat has its good points but in summer it is warm a cap that can be jammed into the pocket without injury on entering a church or museum is a great convenience for to read from a guidebook while holding a stiff hat under one's arm requires unusual dexterity and good nature. A derby is, of course, the desirable hat in city streets, but a man could go all through Europe with a soft outing cap and never feel that his head covering was attracting attention or making him the subject of unpleasant comment. Of course, if ceremonious calls are to be made, the conditions are quite different. I refer to traveling in Europe, not to staying there. On the boat, the woman tourist will find a cap, tam-o'-shanter, or hood, the most useful thing, and for men, a soft hat or cap is a sine qua non. For the feet, light-colored shoes are, on the whole, preferable, because they look better with less care. Every healthy tourist is sure to do a great deal of walking, and many a night the feet will ache. So only the easiest of shoes should be worn, and for the same reason, slippers will prove a big relief In hotels and pensions, women should take a pair of soft, heelless dressing slippers. Outing shirts for men are far the most comfortable, and they have the decided advantage of not yielding so quickly to the grime of railway trains and the perspiration of exercise, which the traveler cannot avoid. Now that for four or five months of the year they are commonly worn in the daytime, their suitability for travel is beyond question at the table d'ote and at any place of resort after dark the white shirt and collar are of course desirable and almost every man after a day's sightseeing or car riding is glad to get into fresh garments of a somewhat more genteel character so that a white shirt or two should be found in every traveling bag but in the daytime the younger men at any rate may safely give the outing shirt the preference the tourist with even the most dapper instincts can afford to remember that common sense does not demand him to compete in dress with the men he will see in piccadilly or the unter den linden what is called a business suit is the most appropriate costume a man can wear and it is needless for him to take along any other of course there is satisfaction in putting on a black coat sundays or for dinner but its absence will not be remarked a dress suit is wholly needless for almost every tourist if you get the chance to attend some dinner party or state function, hire a dress suit if you can't borrow one. Unless you have intimate friends living abroad, the chances of such a need are remote. You would not like to sit in certain parts of the opera house at Paris unless you were an evening dress. There are plenty of seats where a black cutaway or Prince Albert will be just exactly as satisfactory to yourself and everybody else, and a sack suit will arouse no comment. Walking sticks are an encumbrance that will not be endured by men, not irretrievably bound to the cane habit. Many will prefer not to take an umbrella, but to buy one should imperative occasion arise. It may not happen at all that you will be in rain, where an umbrella will be demanded. Women will need the lightest of rubbers, men will not need them. The streets of all European cities are paved, and you never come across anything like genuine American mud in northern europe in winter galoshes might occasionally prove useful but the streets are so quickly cleared of snow that they are less serviceable than in the states women are likely to need rubbers on shipboard by reason of wet decks and an extra pair of shoes against the chance of waves wetting one pair in all this advice it will be noticed that comfort is the first consideration style the last this is partly because style is actually of less consequence in europe than in america for though the aristocrats of london are the best dressed men in the world and the demi-monde of paris displays the women who think themselves the best dressed women in the world the mass of the people are more indifferent to the dictates of fashion than those of american cities and there is a variety in costume which relieves the stranger from appearing odd if he consults his purse or fancy but the advice is given chiefly because comfort is indeed the most important thing in travel for travel is hard work hard physical work and it cannot be enjoyed if the demands of the body are ignored food and drink most important of bodily demands is that of the stomach fortunately the traveller in europe has little need of counsel in this regard for the cooking is uniformly superior to that of america and except in great britain and holland the customs do not encourage overeating perhaps the most prolific cause of bodily disorders in central and southern europe it is the universal practice that the first meal of the day shall consist of coffee or chocolate with a roll and butter this seems all wrong to the american before he gets there he thinks he never will be able to last till luncheon time if he can't add at least an egg or two and a beefsteak or mutton chop would not be unwelcome yet after trying the continental plan for a week rare is the american who hungers for the hearty american breakfast nevertheless americans who go back and forth frequently tell me that though on the other side the coffee and roll seem amply sufficient the moment they land in new york they have to go back to more substantial dishes perhaps the climate has something to do with it certain it is too that the Briton and the dutchman when at home insist on starting the day with a liberal supply of fuel perhaps because their cold winters demand it the continental custom of serving both luncheon and dinner in courses prevents fast eating and therefore is more healthy than the american custom though very trying to the american patients each portion seems small and nobody has the audacity to ask for a second help yet somehow when you have finished your appetite has been satisfied bean ascribes to this the fact that on his last trip he lost twenty pounds yet came home in better health than he had enjoyed for years and it is sure that sickness among american travelers abroad is rarer than among an equal number of americans of the same station in life at home though doubtless that is partly because they are usually in good health when they start when you have your choice of dishes as at cafés order what is local if you want the best what can you expect if you order salmon in switzerland macaroni in edinburgh food is one of the few things where price is no index of quality the cheapest dishes are often the most delicious wine is another article that is best where it is produced it is often hurt by transportation and away from its home it is often adulterated for example it is almost impossible for any but an expert to get pure sherry anywhere save in Jerez, spain the most delicious of italian wine the monte Fiescone is only to be found at its best in the neighborhood of orvieto for it is injured even by carrying as far as rome and would be utterly worthless if conveyed to paris for that reason it is cheap at orvieto in spite of its excellence therefore the wine of a district the vin ordinaire is not to be despised because it is of low cost from the fact that wine is the common beverage of the latin countries and beer of the Germanic countries, it does not follow that Americans must use either wine or beer. So many American and English believers in total abstinence have successfully fought to get water or milk in continental hotels, that now the total abstainer attracts no attention. Tolerable drinking water is always to be secured, but it is usually not as cold as we like it, and the European does not appreciate our wish that it be freshly drawn. The water in the carafe's always to be found on the washstands in European hotels is supposed to be fit for drinking, even though it may have been put there hours before. Tobacco The smoking American has a hard time of it on the continent. In several of the countries, notably France, Spain, and Italy, the trade is in the hands of the government, or so enormously taxed that it is virtually a government monopoly. Whatever may be the benefits to the national exchequer, there are certainly none to the consumer. And if a nationalist or state socialist wants arguments to support his theories, let him shun the subject of European tobacco. Pipe smokers will find no plug tobacco abroad. They can get American brands of long cut or fine cut only at exorbitant prices. Where the monopoly prevails, the common smoking tobaccos offered for sale will cure the habit if anything will. Italian cigars are about the meanest cigars man ever perpetrated on a suffering community. French cigars are not much better. Havana's can be bought in the Latin countries at high rates. The Germanic races come nearer understanding what is good in the tobacco line. Cigars are cheap in Switzerland, cheaper in Germany, and dog cheap in Holland. In fact, Holland is the paradise of smokers. Tobacco is absolutely free of duty there, if I understand right, and partly by reason of the fact that Sumatra is a Dutch possession. Holland leads the world in some branches of the tobacco trade, so the discreet smoker will bring home from Holland as many cigars as he can. In Rotterdam or Amsterdam, he can buy for two cents apiece cigars that in many American cigar stores would retail for ten cents straight and for five cents he can get luxury that in america a millionaire would deem extravagance the cigarette habit prevails in france italy and spain so that decent cigarettes can be bought but turkish or egyptian cigarettes are not given away in germany and austria pipe smoking is more common and in great britain it would seem as if most men smoked a pipe both indoors and out manners and customs americans and englishmen do not bear a good reputation on the continent in point of manners the typical Briton is believed to be a brute the typical yankee a bore. unfortunately our nation has been too often represented abroad by shoddy aristocrats the newly rich of late we have sent over every year a much larger proportion of refined and cultivated people who are gradually redeeming our reputation and some of our observant countrymen are vain enough to think we are nearing the ideals Of courtesy faster than the english without infringing on the hallowed precincts of a book of etiquette and without expecting that the most sensible advice can move the prejudices of the innately vulgar yet i may hazard a few suggestions and a little information to the american who realizes the good sense of adapting himself somewhat to the customs of the nation he may visit first of all it may be pointed out that courtesy is so common among the people of the continent as to make the lack of it more offensive than in our own less considerate land nothing whatever is to be gained by the dictatorial manner even when dealing with europeans of the lower classes a smile will accomplish much more than a frown the good-natured man will travel with far more ease and comfort than the man who frets and fumes and scolds and swears more flies are caught with molasses then with vinegar remember that the old traveller is self-contained he makes the best of the situation without venting to his neighbour either surprise or indignation of all travellers the fussy man is the biggest bore if you don't like things and there is no remedy keep your mouth shut the kicker may get more but at what a cost of course on the first trip a great many things are new and at first sight uncomfortable but when a thing is There is usually a reason for it and a justification. Give it a fair test, learn it before you grumble about it. Human hogs are always met in traveling. The American instinct is to fight for one's rights and baffle the hog. But if American shrewdness fails to carry the day, better leave the field to the hog. There is little satisfaction and much discomfort in open battle with him. The human iceberg is almost as disagreeable and strange to say its nationality is more likely to be american than anything else just as the puritans reasoned that all pleasure must be sinful so in our reaction from the free and easy manners that gave dickens and others the chance for ridicule half a century ago some of our ultra-cultured people are going to the extreme of frigidity and formality probably it was an american aristocrat who refused to help a drowning man because she had not been introduced to him. But considerations of humanity aside, the truth is that courtesy should ever rise superior to conventionality. Courtesy does not require one to embrace every stranger, but it does call for conversation at dinner tables and for companionship in diligences, railway compartments, and other places where people must pass time close together. The people of the continent are very considerate in this regard, and the higher their rank, the more gracious their bearing. Two of the pleasantest and kindest dinner companions I ever met turned out to be a German countess and baroness, and their titles remained unknown to me for several days after they first said good morning in the pension at Rome, where chance threw us together. At evening in the parlor they led in all endeavors towards sociability. What a contrast that parlor was to the parlor of an American summer hotel it was the difference between june and december courtesy abroad does not go by strata people there know how to be gracious to their social inferiors without being condescending on the continent every woman no matter what her dress or occupation may show to be her station in life gets at least the outward tokens of respect in france the commonest drudge must be saluted as madame every man even to the humblest is monsieur In Italy, it should be signore or signora, in Spain, signor or signora. In the Germanic countries, no appellation of this sort is customary in addressing strangers, but the salutation is always couched in respectful phrase. In Great Britain, however, salutations to strangers are as awkward and unceremonious as with us. Worse, in fact, because there one must not use the interjectional sir, so freely as we use it to an englishman that term is more one of servility than of courtesy and it is not to be used in addressing men supposed to be of socially inferior position by the way it is not commonly taught in the schools nor told in the books that the familiar french phrase s'il vous plait if you please is not the proper phrase to employ where there is no flavor of command it may be addressed to a waiter or chambermaid, or anybody else in giving an order, or what amounts to an order, but not properly to the host when accepting something at table, nor in general when the idea to be expressed is our with pleasure, "volontiers," or something of the sort is then preferable. The English phrase that most worries and wearies the American is thank you. By tradespeople, clerks, everybody of low degree, it is used interminably without any regard to its meaning, and pronounced with a peculiar rising inflection that rasps the ear till it becomes intolerable. Everywhere on the continent it is usual to say good day in the language of the locality on entering or leaving an office or a shop. Frequently it is spoken on entering or leaving a railway compartment, and the almost universal custom at such moments is for men to salute by raising the hat or a courteous bow also it is the proper thing when entering or leaving the dining-room of a hotel or pension to salute or to bow a farewell to those who may be at table a party of americans entering late the dining-room of a small hotel in spain saw at a separate table a group of spanish gentlemen enjoying their after-dinner cigars though there were ladies in the american party spanish courtesy did not demand that the spaniards should stop their smoking but presently it was noted that when they left the room each spaniard bowed courteously to the americans though their table had been at some distance and not a word had been interchanged on the streets of continental cities the most striking difference between foreign customs and those of america is in the handling of the hat men ordinarily salute each other by lifting the hat and of course they pay the same compliment to all women of their acquaintance most admirable practice is the respect shown to grief by lifting the hat whenever a coffin passes all men will do this whether the coffin contains prince or pauper it is a custom that every american will do well to bring home with him in all offices and banking rooms it is usual to remove the hat sometimes in cafes and even in confectionery shops the stranger who neglects this may find himself requested to do it in germany or russia and it is not uncommon to ask it even in the post offices and hotel lobbies of russia often because of the holy image standing in some dark corner ladies will not encounter such requests save on the floor of some of the leading parisian theaters where hats are not permitted to be worn possibly the time will come when every woman in every audience room everywhere will realize the injustice she does to those behind her by wearing either a high hat or a high coiffure and all men will bless that freak of fashion which some day may induce ladies to dispense with their headwear indoors altogether americans going abroad for business purposes are at first at a loss as to how to dress to best advantage in london the silk hat and frock coat are an essential to the business man who would get a respectful hearing should he enter an office clad in the usual business suit of new york or chicago he would at the outset handicap himself by giving an unfavorable impression for all the self-respecting merchants and moneyed men of london follow the fashion set by the bank of england in ordering its clerks to wear tall hats and black frock coats during business hours yet cross over to a german city and that costume would be enough to arouse the suspicion of frivolity or shallowness for your substantial german merchant or manufacturer as little respect for the niceties of dress the etiquette of large commercial and manufacturing establishments abroad is formal and uncompromising if an american approaches their officials with the brusque breezy manner common to many of our pushing businessmen he will be met with a rebuff that will freeze him and no amount of argument will overcome the prejudice he will have aroused a man of affairs who had occasion To visit the leading cities of the germanic countries on a business mission thus describes the procedure on entering an office your name and business must be stated to an attendant who shows you into a small waiting room always provided for the purpose the servant takes your card within and if your visit is in order you are in due course shown into the presence of the manager usually termed air director before entering you must leave on the table in the ante-room your hat and stick. The proper greeting is to bow low, place your right hand on your left breast, and say, I have the honor. Then you hope the director has enjoyed good health and add something complimentary if you are quick-witted enough to think of the right thing to say. By this time, the frown on the brow of the great man has faded, he produces cigars, is amazed that you do not smoke, and the conversation drifts into the business in hand. If he invites you to go into an adjoining room or out into the works the matter of precedence in passing through the door suddenly assumes importance and it often takes half a minute to get the tangle straightened out the director motions you forward but you fall back and implore him bitte Herr director he says an urgent bitte to you but you are firm and he gravely passes out before you meet him later on the street and if the acquaintance is well advanced He takes his hat entirely off, dips it twice, and advances rapidly with extended hand to greet you. You, of course, doing the same. Then the hours. While the workmen are in their places at seven o'clock, the office seldom begins before half-past eight or nine, and you must never appear for business until after ten. At that hour, all business, mechanical and commercial, comes to a stop, and the men repair to the nearest beer shops and restaurants, for beer or wine, and a light lunch. This takes half an hour. Then at 12, all hands knock off for a leisurely dinner, followed by a long, quiet smoke with perhaps a game of cards, a newspaper, or a discussion. This intermission lasts two hours, and during the period, business comes as completely to a standstill as if it were Sunday or a holiday. Wholesale houses, manufactories, brokers' offices, banks, etc., Are closed up tight as a drum. At 2 o'clock the doors are unlocked and the wheels begin to move. From that hour till 7 and even 8 o'clock at night commercial business goes on steadily. The mechanic works cheerfully 10 and 11 hours and subscribes funds for his English brothers striking for eight. There is some variation in these practices in different continental countries but substantially they are the same everywhere. Men move much more slowly than with us. Italians have an odd way of beckoning. In America, people wave the hand toward them when they desire a person's approach. In Italy, it is just the opposite. When an Italian waves a goodbye to you with his hand, you imagine he is calling you back. And if he wants you to approach, he motions with his hand, as Americans do in making a gesture of repulsion. Somewhere, I have picked up a list of the insults that an american may unwittingly offer to a foreigner without vouching for the accuracy of the statements i give them for what they are worth in england if a friend is visiting another and stays to dinner he may ask for the loan of a hairbrush without giving offence but in hungary he may not to attempt to borrow that useful article is one of the greatest insults which can be offered to a hungarian and one which will in most cases cause a duel In France, the unwary foreigner may be visiting a friend and may put his hat upon the bed. This is a grievous form of insult, but why it is not known. It is a very ancient one, and so probably results from an old superstition. Again, there are two ways of pouring out wine in France, as everywhere else. One of these is to hold the bottle so that while pouring, the thumb is facing the tablecloth. The second way is to hold the hand reversed that is with the knuckles downward and this is a great insult to the assembled guests and the host a far greater insult than drinking a health in water and that is pretty serious in france in germany to offer to a lady a rose or any other flower without any green or leaves with it is to insult her deeply but why this should be so is not known precisely in italy it is deemed insulting to refuse a pinch of snuff End of section 14